to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. church today is the beginning of our first sermon series called Family Values. Uh, We have a mission and vision, but what undergirds that is our core values. Core values motivate the mission of the church, and we have six of them. So the first family value that we're going to talk about today is give glory. Uh, Give glory will undergird everything we do and everything we are as a church. In order to understand that, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 24. And I'm going to read this psalm for us. This psalm is characterized as a song about the king of glory. I'll read it for us. Psalm 24 starts, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek to see the face of the God of Jacob." Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. Let this psalm make it known that names matter. Do you believe that? Names matter. When I think about uh, the naming of each of our three children, I remember the times that my wife and I would talk back and forth about what they would be named because the name captures the identity of someone. And we wanted our children to have identities that they could live into. So their names matter to us. A few years ago, I sat under the teaching of a child psychologist who suggested that we don't just name our children once, but rather we continually name our children in the way that we speak to them, in the way that we speak about them, and in the way that we treat them. For instance, some of us grew up in homes where we were taught that our names are, you are only as good as your actions. You are only worth what you are providing to help this family. On the other hand, there are those of us who are named in gracious households that are taught, you are loved unconditionally. There is nothing that you will do that will separate you from my love. We are constantly naming people with the way that we talk and with our actions. Names matter to God as well. In fact, God has chosen to reveal himself through the Bible. And in the Bible, God has told us specific names that he wants to know. He wants us to know about himself. And in Psalm 24, we see this fundamental name of God, the King of Glory. So it's critical that we ask ourselves, when I talk to God, 
Do I speak like I'm speaking to the king of glory? When I talk about God, do I sound like I'm talking about a king of glory? And in the way that I live my day-to-day life, do I act like I'm following a king of glory? Church, it's important that we understand because God has chosen to disclose himself as a king of glory, that the king of glory deserves glory because of who he is. The king of glory deserves glory because of what he's done. And as a response to that, we should enjoy God for who he is and worship the king of glory. And that's exactly what Psalm 24 is telling us to do. There is uh, a liturgy in our order of service. Uh, A liturgy is is the flow, the movements that we walk through throughout our morning. We've chosen that intentionally because we believe everything we do on Sunday morning is a picture of what it looks like to live as a mature disciple. That's why we have the different parts of our service on Sunday morning. Guess what? We didn't invent that. In fact, in history, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, had liturgies for seasons of life. They had liturgies for the year, and they had liturgies for the day and week. And Psalm 24 was known as part of the liturgy to be read on the first day of the week. They wanted you to understand Psalm 24 as you set out on a new week, because everything we do, every attitude we have, every action we participate in is the foundation of showing that we believe God is the king of glory. So I don't think there's a better place for us to start as a church than to talk about that. Why? Because the king of glory deserves glory because of who he is. Growing up uh, with the name Gabe, which is short for Gabriel, I would often get, oh, Gabriel, like the angel. And I was a pretty good kid, but, but I was snarky at times. And, and I would say, no, it's actually like my grandfather. And that actually still happens to me today. I, I have that physiological response, but I've reeled it in a little bit, and I, I don't add the it's like my grandfather. Um, but the reason that I did that, and the reason that I still feel that way at times, is because I knew my grandfather, the patriarch of our family. And I was named after him, and I wanted the world to know about that because my grandfather was a man of legend, Mario Joseph Gabrielli. That is who I was named after. Mario Gabrielli was born in Italy in 1923. His family immigrated to the United States when he was a child. Their family had to teach themselves how to read and write in a hostile environment where they were the only ones who didn't know the language before them. In the midst of that, he found out that he excelled at sports. And Mario Gabrielli was actually a leader on the team who won the World's Fair in soccer in 1939 in upstate New York. But he didn't just know global football. He excelled at American football, too. And while he was in high school, he was scouted by the Green Bay Packers in high school. As a young man in the midst of World War II, as an immigrant, he decided to enlist in the army because he was a patriot for his new home. And originally he was stationed in Northern Africa where he fought in the army with the infantry, but eventually they moved up into Europe. And in the middle of combat, he was literally blown up in France and he lost his leg 
and came back to the United States on a boat for the second time, this time in a body cast where he contracted malaria. But he persevered. And when he got home and when he figured out how to reinvest in life, he and his wife, my grandmother Lillian, became pillars in the community in which they lived. He became the postmaster of that community and wore that with pride. And as it's said about him, Mario Gabrielli coached every young man who played sports uh, before they were out of high school. Because of that, because of his life, my grandfather was inducted into the American, uh, excuse me, the Italian American Hall of Fame as a war hero. But he was also inducted into the Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Fame twice, once for his prowess at soccer and a second time because of his coaching in American football. When he died, I was nine years old, and the doctors suggested that it was probably his sixth heart attack that took his life, which adds to the mystique of his story, right? If you had heard the legend of Mario Gabrielli, you knew him by that name. If you knew him personally, he was Gabe. But to me, he was Pappy. He was my grandfather after whom I was named, and I wanted the world to know about that because the patriarch of our family was magnificent. And in Psalm 24, David, who's the king of Israel at the time, wants the world to know the patriarch of his family. Listen to what he says about the patriarch of the family that David is a part of. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. In two verses, David is beckoning back to the origin story of creation that's captured in the book of Genesis. Genesis literally means origins. And in just two verses, King David is summarizing Genesis chapters one and two, which begins with, in the beginning, God created. See, God predated creation, so everything that came about was by God, because of God, through God, and for God. That's what David's saying in verse one and two. Creation uh, before the fall of humanity before rebellion was, was good. See, God created a place. First it was the universe and then this unique space where humanity would reside, the earth on which we live. God created life, both vegetation and animals, to fill the earth. God created humanity in his own image, the ones who are supposed to represent God in the world and reflect him to the world. God created systems and structures and order for the world. And it was all good. That is who David is celebrating as the king of glory. This was very special in ancient times because at this time, pagans viewed different gods as limited to certain spaces and functions. But the God of the Bible, David is saying, is different than any other God. He is the sovereign ruler, the creator of everything. And for that, he is worthy of worship. Listen to the verbiage that David uses. The earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. That reveals God's ownership over creation. We're also told that God laid its foundation. God is the designer and architect of life and living. God established the earth on its rivers. 
Anytime waters were talked about in the Old Testament, they were identified with, with chaos because the waters could never be tamed. And talking about establishing the earth on the waters is saying God is the very one who can tame the chaos in life. God is the creator, and David wants us to know because of that, God deserves to be worshipped. Consider for a second, when you think of Apple computers, you probably think of Steve Jobs because he's the creator. When you think of Waco, you probably think of Chip and Joanna Gaines because they have recreated Waco. David wants you to know that when you think of life and living, you should think of God because he is the creator and he deserves to be worshipped. Do you take time to linger on who God is. In the busyness of life, do you take time to linger on who God is? Because when you do that, it will change you. When you realize who God is, it will compel you to worship him. The first thing that we learn in Psalm 24 is that the king of glory deserves glory because of who he is. And then David follows that with two questions. In verse 3, he says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That is not verbiage that most of us use in day-to-day life. What David's saying in verse 3 is, Who is worthy to be in the presence of this creator king? Did any of you grow up in a home when uh, you knew when or when not to interrupt mom or dad in the middle of their workspace? Yeah, you did. I did. I knew that there were moments, there were times of day, there were circumstances where it was in my best interest to not approach my father. Well, David is constructing this conversation about when is it okay to approach God and whom is able to access God. And he gives us this answer In verses 4 through 6, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart can approach God. The one who has not appealed to what is false and whom has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. David tells us who can approach God. Those with clean hands, that means God-honoring actions. Those with pure hearts, that means God-honoring character. Those who have not appealed to what is false, that just means you haven't worshipped other gods. And those who have not sworn deceitfully, those are people who have had integrity in all of their relationships. So to enter God's presence, you need to be clean personally, spiritually, and socially. Great. Go team. Let's do it. But the problem is throughout all of human history, There is no one who has lived with clean hands and pure heart. There is not a person who has stepped face on this earth who has not turned to other gods to worship them for hope, for salvation, for satisfaction, for peace. Each and every one of us has compromised relationships and we've not lived with perfect integrity. Genesis 1 and 2 does an impeccable job of teaching us about the matchlessness of God. And in Genesis 3, we see sin and rebellion 
and turning our eyes away from God. In Genesis 3, we see how quickly people were ready to turn their backs on God and exchange the truth about God for a lie. And the same pattern of sin has persisted in people from the beginning. Even in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, we're told that there is no one righteous, not even one. Later on, the author of Romans says in verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, to sin is to misdirect glory, to misuse it, to mismanage it, to point it in the wrong direction. So when David asks this question, who is able to approach the creator? The answer is no one. You know, we're not even good at misdirecting our worship. We're not even good at misdirecting glory. Consider how many of us, myself included, run to food to try to feel satisfaction and peace. We run to relationships to try to make us feel better. We run to social media. We run to Netflix. We run to sports teams to try to make us feel good about life and living. None of these things can maintain our directed glory. So we chase after other things. No one is worthy to approach God based on our misguided actions and misdirected glory. But thank God the psalm doesn't end there. The psalmist gives us hope. David says that there are people, there's actually an entire generation of people who can approach God. And God blesses those who are able to approach him. Now, this word generation just means a group that's united by common characteristics. And according to the psalmist, this group is united by the fact that they inquire of God and seek the face of God. Seek is a key word for us here. Uh, we tend to think of the word seek in the English language as to search something out. Uh, but seek had more depth of meaning for the Hebrews. And because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, it's good for us to understand what this word meant to them. To seek in Hebrew literally means to trust or to turn to for help. So those who are granted access to God are the ones who have trusted him and turned to him for help. The ability to approach God isn't about what we do. It's about trusting what God has done. You see, while we were marred with sin and shame, God gave us clean hands and a pure heart. Before we can approach God, we have to turn to him and do what we never could. To be pure enough, to be righteous enough, to be good enough, to be holy enough, to be perfect in the eyes of God. To turn to God is to redirect your glory in the place that it belongs or better yet, to redirect our glory to the one whom deserves it, which is our king of glory, God himself. We have to practice that turning once to inherit the greatest blessing of salvation. But as people of the king of glory, we have to constantly turn away from these things that we seek to give us peace. When you think about turning to God in day-to-day -day life, I think around the new year about Every November and December, a thought comes into my mind that I have the power to 
eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and I am not going to feel any consequences because of that. Uh, that, that pattern coming into those end-of-the-year holidays lasts till about mid-December when I, I feel gross and I realize that was an awful decision. And I tell myself, well, it's not realistic that you're going to make it through Christmas and New Year's. Um, so after that, after New Year's, there's going to be a new year and a new me. Just, just as soon as the football playoffs are over and the Super Bowl has been played, and my birthday in March, just after that, new year, new me. I'm going to turn away from a lifestyle that feels like it's killing me, and I'm going to turn toward a better lifestyle. See, right around this time of year, all of us feel that urge to redirect our lives to newness, to experience the fullness of life. Many of us have just set resolutions because we believe that can happen. However, the psalmist is telling us that if you want to experience true fullness of life, you need to turn to the author of life. We have this big Christian word called repentance. It's a loaded word, but you know what it means? To turn, to turn away from a life that is killing us toward the author of life. So friends, I ask you, is your life characterized by repentance? Is your life characterized by redirecting your glory to the one who deserves it, God himself? That might seem like an abstract question, so let's hone in on it a little bit more. If you have, struggle, if you have trouble answering the question, is your, mar- is your life marked by repentance? I, I encourage you to ask this question instead. Does the God that I worship ever disagree with me? Friends, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. We turn to God with faith. Faith in who God is. Faith in what he's done that we could never accomplish on our own. God makes us clean and pure so that we can be in his presence to enjoy him and give him the glory that he deserves. The king of glory deserves glory because of what he's done for us. So what's our response to the king of glory? We exist to enjoy God and to bring glory to his name. Listen to how David finishes this psalm with a chorus. Lift up your hands, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. David's description here in these verses is the picture of a victorious king returning from battle. In the cities in the ancient Near East, The gate of the city was critical, and they would often remain closed for protection. And they would certainly remain closed in the middle of wartime. But David, the king of Israel, is saying, Open your gates, the true king, the king of glory. God himself has won the battle, and he's returning to us. So again, we see this pattern in the Bible that that we don't ascend to God, but rather he condescends to us. 
And the celebration of good news in Psalm 24 is that our victorious king is returning to us. David personifies these gates. See, typically people would bow their heads when someone of majesty passed. But in this picture, David's telling them to do the opposite. Lift the gates higher and higher, so much so because we have a glorious, magnificent, mighty, awesome king who's coming in. This is a celebration of good news. And he repeats the words, who is the king of glory? The one who has defeated our enemies. The one who is mighty in battle. The Lord of heaven's armies is coming back for us. And who has he defeated? Sin and all which separates us from God. That is who the king of glory defeats in battle. These last few verses of Psalm 24 are a celebration of good news. And in fact, the word gospel means good news. This is a foreshadowing of how God is going to destroy sin and ultimately death. Because the gospel is good news of victory. In ancient times, if, if a doctor came to examine a sick person and afterward declared that the problem with, was nothing serious, they would call that gospel, euangelion in Greek, good news. They would also use that word in times of battle. In ancient days when soldiers went out to war, people waited anxiously for a report from the battlefield about the outcome. And once the outcome was made known, marathon runners would dash back to their people to let them know what had happened. There were watchmen on the gates of the city that would look out as far as they could to see how the messenger was returning with news. And if they were limping and dragging and moving slowly, they would know in advance that it was probably bad news and it did not go well for them. But the watchmen were taught that if, if they're running, if they're sprinting, they were bearing good news of victory in battle. The king of glory is our victor in battle. And although David is the king of Israel at the time when this is written, he sees himself as the mere marathon runner to declare to God's people the good news that the battle has been won on our behalf and the king of glory is returning. God has always saved a sinful people by grace alone and through faith alone. However, God promised that there would be a real person in history, a savior that would be sent to deal with our ultimate problem of sin and suffering and death all these things that have estranged us from God. Through all of the Old Testament, God's people kept watch for the Savior and the matchless King who would defeat suffering and sin and death. And when you've experienced war and injustice and suffering and slavery and death like God's people in the Old Testament had, you need to hear good news of a big King and that's who they were looking for. And many of us here have experienced circumstances where we feel like we've gone through hell on earth and death and pain and suffering and maybe you are looking for a magnificent king as well. But God's plan of salvation was going to come through the man the world needed, not the one that they expected. And when the king of glory entered into the world as a humble baby, in the womb of a disgraced virgin, 
carrying a child out of wedlock, a man who was raised by refugees, who worked as a carpenter before beginning his profession as a rabbi, a rabbi who preached good news about God's kingdom to the poor, who invited dirty, sick, and desolate people to follow him and was despised by religious leaders. People weren't expecting that king. But the Bible tells us that 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 is our king of glory. See, the Old Testament has a major theme that there is no one like God. And the New Testament has a theme that there is no one like Jesus, who is God. Listen to what the author of Colossians says to the fledgling church. He is the image of the invisible God, this Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Does that sound familiar? That was centuries after Psalm 24 was written and even more centuries after Genesis 1 and 2 was written. The king of glory is Jesus. And although Jesus lived righteously the way that all of humanity was expected to, Jesus had clean hands. Jesus had a pure heart. Jesus could do nothing but the will of the Father who sent him. Jesus had impeccable integrity in all of his relationships. Jesus was despised and treated like a criminal. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament explains it beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The victorious king would come as a humble servant, and we should worship him because of who he is, And because of what he's done. And who is this king of glory? His name is Jesus. Anytime we're confronted with the truth of the Bible about who who God is, we should ask ourselves two questions. So what and now what? So what is a question about what does this mean for us? And now what is a question about what does this mean for the way that we live? In light of Psalm 24, so what? Jesus is the king of glory, so what? To experience true life, we need to turn to the author of life. Turn to him away from our old ways of living. That is our act of worship, so what? Jesus is the king of glory. 
Jesus is the king of glory. Now what? Just like David, we should be marathon runners who are making a way for the king, both in our personal lives and among others in our lives. We should be the ones demonstrating and declaring good news of victory, first in our personal lives. I want to make a case that laziness and busyness are equal and opposite enemies to a life lived for God's glory. Uh, Laziness and busyness both steal glory from God. Think about it. Laziness is finding an excuse to be unproductive. Some people have the unique gift to manufacture ways of living unproductive lives. The world offers more ways of lazy procrastination than probably ever before. We have YouTube, we have smartphones, we have Netflix, we have text messaging. None of these things have to be inherently bad, but they can most certainly be distractions. And we are surrounded by temptations that we probably succumb to more than we'd like to think. On the other hand is busyness. We live in a very driven culture. And somewhere along the way, we began to believe that busyness was equated with godliness. And although we tend to complain about busyness, we also find that it validates us and makes us feel good about ourselves. Tim Challies, a pastor and author, wrote a book called Do More Better. It's actually a good book. Don't let, don't let yourself be hung up on the title. He says this in his book, while busyness may make you feel good about yourself and give the illusion of getting things done, it probably just means you are directing too little attention in too many directions, that you are prioritizing all the wrong things and that your productivity for the kingdom is suffering. Guilty? Guilty. We are often vacillating between frantically busy and recklessly lazy as though those are our only two options. What if we structured and organized our lives so that we could do the maximum good for others and thus bring the maximum glory to God? If you struggle with this, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. Uh, it's, It's not perfect, but what it does is it helps structure your life so that you can do the most good to maximize the most glory for God. You know, for some of us, it might be just making a list of all of our responsibilities and recognizing there's too much on our plates. And in the midst of that, we might have to say no to some things. Do you realize not every open door as we're walking through life is a door for you to walk through? Do you realize that you might be robbing other people of opportunities to glorify God by doing too much? Laziness and busyness are are equally opposite enemies to giving glory to God. We worship the king of glory. Now what does that mean for our relationships with others? Jesus, the king of glory, said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Glory is often associated with light. And the good news of the gospel is that the light is going to pierce and destroy the darkness. And if you are a follower of Christ, you are called to be a beacon of light. You are called to bring light into the darkness. 
to live in such a way that brings glory to God by bringing hope to the hopeless and peace where there is chaos and truth where there is deception. So church, I ask you, where or among what people has God called you to be a light in the darkness? Write down where you believe God wants to see the light pierce the darkness in your life. In fact, when each of you came in, uh, hopefully you received a a little yellow post-it note. I want us to begin to have a vibrant, redemptive imagination about how God would have us be a light in the darkness. I want us to be a church that believes that through our presence, God's glory can be made known. So think about it in your own personal life. Think about it in the places where you live, work, and play. Think God-sized dreams. Where might God break the darkness with his light? And write that down on your post-it note. And we're going to stick them on that chalkboard before we walk out of this place. I'll, I'll give you examples. I've written down two of them already. The first one is very personal to me. It's the initials of my son, Rocco. I am praying that in 2019, God will capture his heart, that he will trust and follow Christ, and that this year will be the year that changes the trajectory of his life, that he turns to the author of life. I wrote that down because I'm going to pray about it, and I'm going to show up when God provides opportunities to be a light in the darkness of his life. On the second sheet, I wrote down orphan care. Even though we're now officially an infant church, I long for King's Community Church to be a people that does more to invest in the fatherless, in the orphans, both in our community and throughout the world than anyone imagines a one-year-old church could. We need to pray toward that end because God moves people through prayer. And as we write these down and post them on the board, these are going to be the things that we pray about as a church. These are going to be the things that God calls some of us to show up and address And he might call others to show up and address them as well. And we might even find a pattern of how God is moving among the people in this room right now and say, these are issues that this church is going to step up and address in this world. Why? Because we worship the king of glory. The king of glory who deserves glory because of who he is. The king of glory who deserves glory because of what he's done. And church, we will seek to enjoy him and to bring a light into the darkness. As you write those things down, I want you to post them on that board before we go. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. Thank you that while we were still sinners, your character, your integrity never changed. And even when we rebelled against you, you sought us. The creator of the universe condescended to rebellious sinners in order that we could have access to you. God, help us to be a people that that give you glory because of who you are. Help us to be a people that give you glory because of what you've done for us that we could never accomplish on our own. God, help us to be a people that light up the darkness, speaking good news and inviting other people to trust you. We pray this in the good name of our glorious King, Jesus Christ. Amen.